The political conversation today is dominated by the idea of polarization. Listen to one expert, Henry Brady of the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley. America is the most polarized it's been in over uh, 150 years, probably. The last time we suspect it was as polarized as it is now was right after the Civil War. We now find that Republicans don't want their children to marry Democrats, and Democrats don't want their children to marry Republicans. Or Rachel Kleinfeld of the Carnegie Endowment. Political polarization in America feels close to a breaking point. The parties have polarized, and with them, so have the voters. And so voters are desperate, because their identity is on the line, to make sure their party wins. That means that voters are willing to put their party ahead of democracy. Very few democracies have polarized to this extent and not fallen apart when the ships are down. But is it true that we're hopelessly polarized? I asked one of the leading political scholars in this field, Morris Fiorina of Stanford University. Fewer people now are willing to simply say, I'm either a Democrat or a Republican. We have two minority parties, basically, that neither one commands the loyalties of a majority of the population. Wait a minute. If the size of the electorate identifying with either one of the two political parties is shrinking, is America polarizing? This is Wally Knox. Welcome to The Political Conversation. We need an honest conversation about the vast changes going on in our politics. Instead, the national conversation seems stuck shouting about the left and the right, Democrats versus Republicans, CNN versus Fox, and the more extreme, the better. Even though the data shows that the two political parties are losing more and more supporters over time, and the political landscape is shifting under our feet. Today, let's dive into the presidency of Joe Biden. Polls tell us that about 80% of Americans want his presidency to succeed. But what are the prospects for his success in what so many tell us is a thoroughly polarized America? The 2020 national election produced a government with tiny margins. Biden won the presidency and defeated Donald Trump by just 37 electoral college votes. Democrats ostensibly run the Senate, which is split 50-50, and Democrats barely have a five-vote majority in the House of Representatives. The national election produced a government with tiny margins. Why did this happen? And what are the prospects for Biden's success? My guest today, Morris Fiorina, has a distinctive take on the political background for that question. Morris Fiorina, who insists you call him Mo, holds an endowed chair of political science at Stanford University and is a fellow of the Hoover Institute. Mo jokes that half his salary is paid by liberals and half is paid by conservatives. Before Stanford, he taught at Harvard and Caltech. In other words, he's no slouch. I asked Mo to join us today to share some of his work, which has shown that we're living in a highly unusual era in United States political history, an era in which neither party, Democratic or Republican, has been able to assemble a successful governing majority for longer than one or two years. These days, newly elected presidents have lost their majorities in Congress in the first off-year election. Will Joe Biden face the same fate, or will he be able to chart a course that brings him success in the 2022 election and a renewed ability to govern for his full term? Welcome to the political conversation, Mo. Tell us, 
What does it mean that we're in a period of unstable majorities? Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Historically, the United States has had two big heterogeneous parties. Uh, we called them big tents. And so you had conservative Democrats, you had liberal Republicans. And this is typical in two-party systems around the world, that the, the two parties are big and heterogeneous. They're called catch-all parties. Now, now we have evolved somehow into having two ideologically distinct parties. There's a liberal party and a conservative party. It's sort of like in 20th century Europe where you had the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats contesting, or in Britain where you had the Tories and Labor. Uh, one consequence of this is, I think, uh, that we have smaller parties. That um, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, uh, three quarters of the population said they were Democrats or Republicans. Now it's only about 60%. Uh, over 40% of the country says I'm an independent. We have two minority parties, basically, that neither one commands the loyalties of a majority of the population. Now that results in close elections. Uh, we've been having very close elections for the last two decades or so. And historically, close elections generally result in moderation that both parties will try to trim their sails to try to reach the center and win the election. That's not happening today. And the reason I've argued in other other places is that the parties have changed, that people used to go into politics uh, and give money to parties uh, for material reasons. Uh, you got a government job or you got a contract from the government. Today, the parties, since about the started changing in the 60s, uh, the, the party activists, the donors, are motivated by policy. They're motivated by ideology. And so they really want to accomplish things um, politically. And the result is when they win office in this era of close elections, uh, the idea is not how do we appeal to the majority to, to maintain our majority. It's rather let's strike while the iron is hot. We may very well lose the next election, so let's get while we can, uh, get, get while we can. Now, the problem is that's basically a self-fulfilling strategy, that if you try to impose a minority position on the population as a whole, um, they... Too many people leave your coalition in the next election and you lose, which is what's been happening um, basically for the last 20 years or so. Just to make that clear, can you give us a, an example that leaps to your mind of an instance of that happening? I'll give you several. Uh, start with George Bush's re-election uh, in 2004. Uh, in his inauguration speech, he announces a freedom agenda and Social Security private accounts. And a whole lot of Americans say, I don't remember voting for any of that. And they get whacked in the 2006 election. And Barack Obama comes in, and he's running a fairly moderate platform. And he says, we're going to nationalize health care. And again, this health care is a middling issue in the population as a whole, a whole, but it's big in the Democratic base. And again, they get whacked in 2010. Um, so, and we're seeing, I think, um, the first signs of it now is Biden runs on a very moderate platform, but is being pulled to the left by the Democratic uh, progressives. And um, basically, there's a policies out there, I think, that may very well come back to haunt them in 2022. Well, that's 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 one of the uh, areas I wanted to explore with you. So uh, the way you've phrased it is that uh, the party that gets a narrow majority uh, in order to make its base happy, overreaches in one or another policy area and uh, provokes a backlash from the the middle in, in American politics. Where do you see the overreach in Biden occurring? And, and in particular, because it's pretty obvious that Joe Biden is going out of his way, in rhetoric at least, to reach as deeply as he can into the middle of the American electorate 
but where do you see the missteps taking place? I think um, one of the things I'm sort of sensing, there's sort of a nervousness about the size of the domestic policies he's proposing, that the economy, by all accounts, looks like it's recovering, and just slapping a huge amount of uh, additional spending on an already expanding economy is making some people nervous. Uh, also, the tax increases, that um, it's going to be interesting to see if these suburbanites who defected because they were really tired of Trump, uh, what happens when they start looking and be worrying about their taxes going up. And the response I hear from aggressives is that, well, if you're taxing the rich and you're taxing corporations, I have a poll that demonstrates that that's overwhelmingly popular with people up and down the line. We'll see what it looks like in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a scientific yes. way of determining that. It's called yes. have an election. I mean, everybody in uh, the, the media world is today buzzing about yesterday's political science, which demonstrated that in these midterm elections, it is very difficult to retain whatever majority you eked out uh, in previous years. So presidents always lose House members uh, and frequently lose Senate members in the first two years uh, of their presidency. And I gather we are in unstable majorities, in your view, because the majorities presidents have enjoyed have been so darn tiny that the loss of a few members means you've lost control of the House, lost control of the Senate. Okay, well, let me, let me respond part of that. Actually, some of the majorities have been pretty large. It's just the swings we've seen, the, the number of seats lost have been very large in recent years, going back to sort of, again, a, an earlier period in American history, like the late 19th century. And we got used to a period where 10, 12 seats might uh, the huge incumbency advantage. That's gone. Uh, now a 30-seat majority isn't safe uh, anymore because people are voting for the party, not the person. And so and I think the, the temptation to overreach in this current situation is overwhelming precisely because the Democrats realize they're almost certainly going to lose the House in the next election. So you better grab everything you can right now. The conventional wisdom, which would be we desperately need to win the 2022 election, let's, let's get as much favorable support from as wide a base as possible. That view is rejected in favor of what you just said. That let's let's get what we can now and hope for the best. Well, the wings of both parties often manage to convince themselves that their way is, in fact, the electorally advantageous way. Uh, we have a lot of evidence that says that's really delusional. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think there's part of that, and it's part of just the sense that they really realize we have a two-year window here. It's like going back to health care. Nancy Pelosi is a smart person. And I think she realized that this, this could be really dangerous. They could really put their majority at risk. But she realized there would never be a better chance to do it, that they're never going to have a better majority. The situation would never be more favorable to letting them pass health care. And so they went for it. Obviously, it's pretty difficult looking past 2022 or even 222 on any of these issues. But if the Democrats have some success in 2022 and retaining power, that just lays the groundwork for a whole further question about the direction of the Democratic Party. And the trend has been, as you, as you said, uh, for the party not only to become more liberal, but also to be composed more and more 
of people who are strongly attracted to the Democratic Party. So the the folks who never were strongly attracted to the party have left, uh, and the party now uh, is dominated by liberals who are fervently devoted to the party, and the same thing has happened on the conservative side. If Biden gets through 2022, doesn't he then just face uh, a party which is even more demanding and a base that is even more demanding? And what does that say about 2024? Well, I think that if the Democrats manage to hold on comfortably the House and the Senate in 2022, that's probably an indication that the country has changed and it's ready to go off in a different direction. So, um, I mean, if, I don't think that's going to happen, but if it does, I think then we could start talking about realignment and we can start talking about how the country is really in, in a new era. Uh, so uh, I basically think he would, uh, the progressives would then have a good case of saying this is the the proper way to go. This is the electorally uh, sensible way to go. So the whole uh, dialogue could then shift. Um, and instead of uh, the popular media uh, endlessly discussing the polarization of American politics, the media would pick up the theme that we are in a realigned politics. Yes, we're constructing a new majority. Now, uh, now the one caveat I give to that is that the Democrats would hold the Congress because the Republicans went off the rails and nominated some of the, the wackos like they nominated in the 2014 election, um, then I'd sort of say, okay, again, this was idiosyncratic and not policy. But uh, if, if the Republicans, the, the election is, the, the control of Congress is there for the taking for the Republicans. And if they blow it, uh, that would be political malpractice. But I gather that your view of why that's uh, in, in reach for the Republicans is, is not that the number of Americans who are identifying as Republican has dramatically swelled and they're poised to take victory. But rather, it goes back to a point you made earlier, and that is that the, the middle in American politics, those who uh, do not identify as Democrats or Republicans, the independents, will have made up their minds to reject the Republican Party. Would have made up their minds to embrace the Republican Party's criticisms of Biden's policies. Um, so is that uh, is that the the direction you're seeing things head? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we have to keep in mind how close the last election was. That um, that in the House uh, right now, I think there's maybe a six or seven seat majority. That the Democrats really only have to lose a half, five or six seats in the next election to lose control. Yeah, some days they some days they literally have a five vote majority. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so, given historical trends, which is I think since World War II they've lost it. The president's party has lost an average of twenty seven seats in the in the off year election. So, just basically saying, if the Republicans simply don't blow it, uh, then they're almost certain to carry the house. Plus the fact um, reapportionment and redistricting will work marginally in their favor. And there's not a lot of seats that are going to change because of that. Uh, But um, it's just the Democrats are really facing a hard road ahead in 2022. And so so if they manage to win despite that and the Republicans don't nominate some of the truly crazy people like they nominated in the 2014 Senate races uh, especially, then I'd say, yeah, then we're talking about a changing country. Now, the 
the mechanism that keeps coming up as as uh, determining the results of the election is uh, is the independent vote. And these figures, I think we actually have to sort of say it over and over because it's so startling to me. Independents today are 40%, solid 40%, perhaps more than 40%, inching up. 40% of the American electorate simply refuse to identify themselves straightforwardly as Republican or Democrat, which is, you know, in my lifetime, just amazing situation. So the question then is, where are the independents going? And the question obviously becomes, who are the independents? What is an independent voter? And how do they end up making up their minds on things? The narrative out there is that most independents really aren't independents, that they're closet partisans. And uh, I find especially the younger generation of political scientists tend to just say this as as if this is a well-established finding. Uh, In fact, it's based on two studies published about 30 years ago. And they're subject to a major problem, which is what we call in the business endogeneity, um, reverse causation. You ask people, um, someone who says, I'm not a Democrat or Republican, do you feel closer to either party? Well, not closer. The word itself is ambiguous. Uh, am I closer to my mother than my father? Uh, am I closer to the Democrats on foreign policy? It's really sort of, but anyway, they gave you a reply. And it turns out that people who say they're closer to the Democrats vote Democrat, Democratic with high probability and similarly for Republicans. Now, the problem is the people change around from election to election. If somebody who says, I'm closer to the Democrats in this election, may tell you he's closer to the Republicans in the next election. And so you can only tell what, look at independents by looking at them across time. And the simple answer is that in independent Democrats, independent Republicans, and pure independents are switching categories from election to election at much higher rates than people who say they're Democrats or Republicans. And what that means is that they're really using it, they're not they're not their vote is not determined by their hidden partisanship but rather their partisanship is determined by how they decided to vote that you, you talk to a person they say well I'm going to vote for Obama so I guess I lean democratic or I'm going to vote for Bush so I guess I lean republican so uh, so that's the the fallacy with saying all the independents are hidden partisans now I think a lot of them some of them are. We just don't know. And some of them are clueless. They pay no attention to politics whatsoever. Some of them are cross-pressured. They like one party on one set of issues, the other party on another set of issues. But the general point I'd make is simply that they are simply more volatile than partisans, that partisans today are very loyal to their their parties, independents uh, less so if you look at them over time. The way you propose that we can resolve this question is to at literally ask the same group of people in 2016, how do you see yourself as a party member? Are you a Republican, Democrat, or independent? And do you lean to one or the other? And who did you vote for in 2016? And track those same thousand folks into 2020 and ask those questions once again. Um, now, every four years, we have the American National Election Survey, which asks those questions. And this last time, 2020, they did exactly that. They found a thousand folks or more, a sizable number of Americans, and compare how they behaved in 2016 to 2020. Won't that, when those studies come out, give us a pretty darn good clue as to whether Uh, the people who have been characterized as hidden partisans are really hidden partisans or not. 
Sure. And it, there's actually a chapter in my book where I look at that uh, over time, all the, and not the most recent survey, but all the other ones. And it's consistently the case that the people who fall in the independent categories are less stable than the people who fall into the partisan categories from election to election. Also, I should put in a plug with my colleagues, David Brady and Doug Rivers. And Doug is the uh, chief scientist for YouGov. And have we have a huge uh, panel running from 2004 to 2020 where people in some cases have been asked their party identification 17, 20 times, and we're just doing preliminary stuff at the moment, but it's very clearly the case that the people who put themselves in independent categories are moving around, and they move around in terms of their, when the vote for Bush goes up, those independents vote more for Bush. When it's Obama, they vote for or for Obama. So it's clearly they're moving with the presidential vote choice in this data set. Yeah, let me just dwell on that for a moment, because a whole industry has been developed around the hidden partisan or closet partisan theory. And we now see commentators uh, explaining to us that the 40% who say they're independents really aren't, maybe 10% of us are, but the rest of the independents really are loyal Democrats or loyal Republicans. And that has become one of the conventional wisdoms of our time. It's it's deeply ingrained in the media. Uh, and I, I have to say, when I first encountered the the survey questions that, that created that, I had the same reaction you did. The, the question folks were asked was, uh, do you think of yourself as closer to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? And I just immediately thought, in what sense? In the sense that I am close to the Republican Party, I am close to the Democratic Party, or in the sense that I'm less far away from the Democratic Party and less far away from the Republican. Which of those senses would a person mean? There was no control on that in the polling whatsoever. Um, and yet on the basis of that data, we have... CNN commentators and Fox commentators adopting the line that the independent vote really isn't a swing vote. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, um, I knew Warren Miller quite well. Warren was one of the very first, uh, one of the principal authors of the American Voter, which introduced the concept of, of political partisanship, party ID. And Warren felt at the end that the whole introduction of the leaning questions and the strength questions had been a mistake, that the original categorization, Democrat, Republican, Independent, was solid. But once he started asking people, are you closer to or how strongly, he said, then you were all picking up what he, he used the term, you're, they were polluted by the short-term forces at work in any given election. And I think that's true. And I, I again, I wish my... My younger colleagues in political science, particularly, I mean, the, the point I'm making, by the way, is not original. It was an old point. When, when this whole subject was first broached, uh, Phil Shively, uh, a colleague at University of, uh, University of Minnesota, made this point. He said, maybe these people are just using their vote intention to tell you how, they're, how they lean. And it's a valid point. I think the data support it, but for some reason it's been lost uh, in the decades since. overall uh, partisan vote, the folks who are happy to say they're Republican, happy to say they're Democrat, is declining. So the folks that uh, uh, a party member campaigning can rely on are fewer and fewer in number. 
one of the problems of the people who talk about party ID as a deep identity, a deep fundamental identity, frankly, I, I don't see it. I mean, how many people wake up the first thing in the morning and think, I'm a Democrat? You know, I just don't think that's the way, m- way most people think. But the people who make this point, I say, well, then why are 40% of the public not even willing to say it? You know, I mean, that just sort of seems like prima facie evidence against it right there. And I, and I think Samara, to her credit, and, and Yana, the, her co-author, uh, do deal with this and do worry about this. And I think I like their work on independence. I think it's uh, it's good. And nobody, I'm not saying that every independent is a true independent. I'm just saying that between 40% being hidden partisans and none being hidden partisans, we don't really know. And all I do know is that we are they are not nearly all hidden partisans. If you're whispering in the ear of some you know, a candidate out there desperately searching for votes as to what percentage fall in, uh, into the, the bracket of folks who actually are making up their minds. Do you have a guesstimate of where those 40% divide? Whatever it is, it still means there's a big enough center that determines elections in this country and has been determining elections for the last 20 years. Basically, the, the big change came in the 70s. It came basically from the mid-60s to the mid-70s and early 80s. And then in the Reagan era, the Democrats uh, suffered further losses to where they're now basically almost on, on parity with the Republicans. Republicans haven't really gained or lost a lot over the years. You make the point that not everybody wakes up in the morning saying, I'm a Democrat, or wakes up in the morning saying, I'm a Republican. Not everybody in the morning wakes up saying, I'm a political scientist. (laughs) What led you into an interest in politics at all? Oh, gee. Well, I started college uh, in 1964 during the Goldwater campaign. I graduated in 1968 uh, when the Democratic Party was coming apart. In between, we had urban riots, Vietnam War protests, assassinations. Um, I mean, basically, you couldn't get away from politics. And and uh, well, there was also the ever-present threat of being drafted and sent to Vietnam. So it was, uh, um, I would say, my cohort in particular had, a, <laughs> had every reason to be really concerned and interested in politics. And then I went to graduate school, and the same thing was happening. We had Kent State. We had uh, further protests. We had Nixon uh, and after Watergate. So politics touched people in a way that um, that it just doesn't touch a lot of people uh, afterwards uh, a little more in more recent times. I used to tell this story. I don't know if you want me to go on like this, but my my first, my older son was totally apolitical, just just completely uninterested in politics. I know there are psychological theories about this sort of thing, but um, but anyway, um, he um, went to college, never did any political science, and a few years after he out, uh, he was um, he was working and he was doing a lot of traveling, and he passed by our house and uh, came in for dinner and. California, and, and he said, uh, over dinner, he said, uh, by the way, he said, uh, how do I vote, or when is this election? And I said, well, it's customary to hold them in November. And uh, he said, what do I have to do to, to vote? I said, we well, have to get registered. And he said, how do you arrive register? And I said, well, you get, he was living in Massachusetts still at the time. I said, well, probably you just go down to the county courthouse in your town or whatever and just, just register. And what, what accounted for this sudden interest in politics? Well, he, at the time, he worked for Microsoft. And the government was suing Microsoft. And for the first time in his life, I, I really think this was the sort of like, um, would have been the early ni- 90s. For the first time in his life, politics touched him. 
that uh, that the Microsoft people were getting a pack together and everything. They were being sued by in, in one state had their own headquarters, and uh, and so I, and I just remember thinking that whole generation had a what I called a holiday from history. That just basically there was there were two superpowers in the, or there was one superpower in the world, no draft, uh, just sort of the economy was booming, and so I think people's interest in politics goes up and down with kind of the. The, the problems we're facing, that um, I think most people would like politics and government to be like the electric uh, company. You come into a room, flick the switch, and the power goes on, you never think about it. When you have to think about things, there's usually problems out there. There's usually problems in the society. Now, your your life and my life over overlap, but took different directions. I was, I was, uh, I went to college in 1964 and was scheduled to graduate in 1968, but ended up enlisting in the army in 1967. <laughs> uh, not the best time to enlist in the army, but that's what that's what young people, some young people, did when they were strong conservatives, which I was at that time, and ended up going to Vietnam and becoming bitterly disillusioned with the war, uh, and changed my politics entirely. But let, let me go a little further and ask you what, what led you in direction. So, you know, I, I, it's, you've taken on kind of a heavy lift, I would call it, uh, and that is the to deal with the polarization theory and the hidden partisan theories. These are theories that have immense popularity um, in the academic community and immense reach deep into our society. Uh, and yet you are producing material that challenges the conventional wisdom in both those realms. Now, that's kind of interesting to me. What what led you to do that? It was kind of an accident. Um, basically, when this whole polarization narrative came out, and especially lead up to the 2004 election, and um, I, I sort of I'd been lecturing on this. I mean, I study public opinion. I, I'm a weirdo who actually reads public opinion polls for entertainment and just sort of just um, so um, and I knew it was false and I sort of penned off a few chapters and I sent them to my textbook editor we at the time we had an American government textbook and I said I could dash out a little book on this whole subject uh, in a few months and he said oh he said go for it he said we'll shrink wrap it into the textbook and maybe sell a few more copies so I gathered two researchers together we wrote this little book and uh, sent it off to him and the next thing I knew it's in the uh, New York Times, and um, which was also an accident in, in a sense. I, I showed a lot of people come through Hoover and Stanford, a lot of journalists, and I showed a lot of people this stuff, and they said, hmm, very interesting, and that was it. And then one day I got a phone call from a fellow named John Tierney, who worked for the uh, Times at the time, and he said, they've given me the front page of the Week in Review uh, next week. Can you work with me on this? And I said, well, Reagan just died. And he said, that's old news by next week. And that was my, one of my introductions to uh, to the media. And so we worked on it. And the next thing, Wall Street Journal comes up and said, why didn't we get this? Because they have a relationship with Hoover. And I said, I showed plenty of your reporters this stuff, and nobody ever showed much interest in it. And it just sort of, then the next thing I know is the editor, the textbook editor called me up and said, Frank Rich wants a copy and so-and-so wants a copy. And they had to rush out and have commercial commercial press print copies because they were just sort of, as I say, shrinking wrapping this. And then it just took off. And so I ended up writing a trilogy so far. And it was just sort of, um, it just took off. So it was kind of one of these accidental things. And, um, and as I say, a lot of political scientists knew a lot of this stuff 
But it was sort of like, well, we all know that, and we and we sort of shake our heads all the time at what we see in the papers, what the journalists write, and it was just. But this time, it just really, um, really, really took off. It was before uh, this. I think the New York Times published the article in in the June, or I think, of two thousand four, and then right after the election, we did a next ed- edition, and then I did another book in two thousand nine or eleven, and then unstable majorities after that. So it was sort of the gift that keeps on giving uh, for me that uh, most political scientists are considered over the hill uh, when they hit 50 or so. And uh, basically, <laughs> I had a, sort of a second career on polarization. What were the names of those books? Uh, the first book was simply called um, Culture War, colon, the, the Myth of a Polarized America. And it was deliberately, deliberately provocative. And the second book was Disconnect, colon, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember what that was. <laughs> and then the third one was Unstable Majorities. Um, that was the one that got my attention for the first time when I first became aware that uh, the, the the theory that I was operating on actually had some holes in it. <laughs> but here's something we haven't explored, and and it is what caught my attention. I, the, your book, Disconnect, uh, the title says it. Your your view there. Correct me if I'm wrong, or expand if you're if I'm right. Um, is that the the American public's opinion on a whole host of policy issues had not undergone fundamental change, but that the two political parties were moving away from a consensus centrist point of view in the American public. There was a disconnect between elected officials and the public at large. And uh, the the issue that that raises it remains a deep worry of mine, and that is that it, certainly if there is that disconnect going on, that does not bode well for a nation that wants to be governed at all, to have some sense of the direction the country is going um, and some sense of stability to the governance it can expect. Um, so we haven't really probed into the implications of these theories, but I'd like to open that for discussion. Yeah, I mean, you summarized it well, that um, collectively speaking, I mean, the, the party system is supposed to sort of are, aggregate all of the interests and values and preferences of the population and then implement them in policy. And I don't think the party system as a whole is doing that now in, in terms of the country as a whole. And I, th- I think we have a political class, that's the term I use for all the candidates and office holders and activists and donors, et cetera, who are different from the public at large. The public hasn't really changed. The, 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 the reason I sort of wrote the first book was simply this argument that the polarization was being driven by the electorate. And I said, no, 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 we, the electorate really hasn't changed. I've been looking at ANES data for 30, 40 years, and it hasn't changed. It's the, it's the it's the leaders who have changed. It's the it's the choices that people are being given that has changed, and um, and so that's been the sort of the fundamental point I've been trying to drive home. I still have trouble getting that across. That so many people like, take something like split ticket voting. People say, well, people are more partisan. They won't split their tickets. No, they don't have any reason to split their tickets. That that it used to be the case. A lot of people would look say, my my Democratic congressman is an anti gun, as a pro gun guy and everything. I'm happy voting for him and for Reagan. You know, we're on the Republican side. You say my Republican 
make uh, sort of Whitman from New Jersey or something is a sort of a moderate Republican. I'm happy voting for both her and uh, Al Gore. And you don't have that anymore. And the example, Joe Manchin, I mean, my God, when he, he ran on the same ticket with Obama in 2016, Obama lost West Virginia by 25 points. Manchin won West Virginia by 25 points. There's massive ticket splitting going on. And is it because West Virginians are weird? No, it's because they're about the only ones left in the country who still have the option of voting for a pro-life, pro-gun Democrat. And that's just the way it is. And there nobody out there anymore has the option of voting for a pro-choice, uh, pro-gun control Republican, that the parties have become so homogeneous that there's no reason to split tickets. And so, I mean, this tendency to say, put everything in the, in the head of the voter rather than the reality that the voters are facing, I think is just a big mistake in a whole lot of political analysis. After the interview, Morris pointed out to me that the election he referred to in West Virginia took place in 2012, not 2016. The trend that I also noted in the literature, and and you may utterly disagree with me on this, but what I noticed was prior to 2010, uh, the literature on polarization was very enthusiastically arguing that the entire American electorate had polarized on policy issues. Um, and that the middle in America was vanishing. We were left or we were right, and we were consistently left on issues or consistently right on issues. Um, And that led into a lot of speculation that the election of Barack Obama would herald in, if you recall that, if we can think back to 2010, uh, was a herald of a new era, a new realignment in American politics in which America would shift dramatically to to the left. 2010 came along and was an absolute disaster for the Democratic Party. Um, And one particular political scientist had the misfortune of publishing in 2010 a book with the title, The Disappearing Middle. Um, And uh, I noticed after 2010, polarization theory moved from discussing policy issues into discussing what they call affect, uh, hatred, of one party member for a rival party member. And uh, that became the new definition of polarization. And then this morning, as usual, I was doing five minutes on CNN, five minutes on MSNBC, and five minutes on Fox, just to take their temperature. And uh, I rolled into CNN, and they had just turned to their in-house polling consultant, who turned to the camera and explained that Joe Biden's stable percentages of approval at 54% were due to, quote, we live in polarized times. (laughs) And then then he went on to explain what he meant by polarization, which startled me because it was a third version of polarization I hadn't heard before. And it was simply that Republicans are voting very consistently for uh, Republicans and very much against a Democrat. Democrats vice versa, and independents, and he mentioned this, 40% of the population are the swing vote and are the crucial factor. And I listened to that and said, that doesn't sound like the polarization theories I've heard previously. <laughs> would like to get your uh, perspective on that. It, it seems like there have been three stages of polarization. One, polar, polarization on policy views up and down the line, abandon that polarization on affect or hatred, and now a new line that is definitely in the media, which is that 
having a big middle with a lot of independents who decide the election is further proof of polarization. Well, the third one strikes me as simply incoherent. Um, the, the first two, uh, yeah, I think most political scientists who, who actually looked at the data said, yeah, it's really true that you can't really find any evidence of significant policy polarization over time. And that was one of the things I think that led people to look more. You know, but, but, but politics really is more conflictual. It really is nastier than it used to be. And I think sort of the, the work on affective polarization uh, filled that gap. I think there's something to it. I think there's just sort of, um, um, it's exaggerated that, um, you know, that basically uh, the words that are used like love the, your party and hate the other party. Come on, we're talking about ratings on a thermometer scale. And so when somebody rates a party 30, they say, well, he hates that party. I'm sure there are days my wife rates me 30 degrees, but I don't think that means she hates me or she loathes me. You know, that, that there, there's just a lot of sort of uh, exaggeration here. And uh, the other thing is that there's evidence, there's some nice studies showing that basically when you ask people to rate Democrats, they think of the people they see on the shout shows. And they see, and, yeah, we're saying they're, and if you sort of give them information on, well, Democrats believe this, Republicans believe this, sort of ordinary Democrats and Republicans, that a lot of that sort of negative and positive is diminished. That, uh, that, uh, so, I mean, I think, and again, I think, plus there's simply the fact is how do you separate the cognitive from the, the affective. That I want to see somebody run an experiment in which they simply give people, like say, here's a person who agrees with you on these five issues, here's a person who disagrees with you on these five, and here's a person who agrees with you on three. I'd be very surprised if affect didn't correlate strongly with, with policy uh, differences. And the fact of the matter is, and, and this may be what the, the third one was getting at earlier, the parties have polarized that we have a polarized party system without having a polarized electorate. That's, that's my general point. And so, you know, basically, if you're a Republican, the Democrats disagree with you more now than they used to, and vice versa for Democrats, because the parties are so homogeneous. That it used to be the case that if you're pretty much any category, there were people in the other party who looked sort of like you. Um, now it's just not the case. The parties are really distinct. Morris Fiorina fascinates me because in his 70s and after four decades of a distinguished academic career, he's decided to take on the central political mythology of our time, the myth that we are coming apart at the seams, that we are divided in a new and fatal way, polarized. So many of us are doing the hard work of trying to figure out what we should be concerned about and what remains for us to believe. There is so much distrust and anger and confusion in our politics. Where is all this going? What is happening to us and why? I don't expect for a moment that you have completely changed your mind about American polarization by listening to this one podcast. But listening to Mo Fiorina, I do have one hope. That you recognize that American polarization that is so often presented to us as an irrefutable fact simply is not. It is a debate. It is not the answer. It is part of the political conversation. For those of you who want to dive into uh, deeper water reading about uh, American politics, I asked Morris for his recommendations of current books. Here's what he said. To go more deeply into who really are the independents, Samara Klar and Yana Krupnikov have a new book, Independent Politics, that is really interesting. 
for a provocative take on the difference between politics as done on social media and the real political organizing, Aitan Hirsch's book, Politics is for Power, is just the thing. By the way, I'll be talking soon with both Samara and Aitan on the political conversation. If you're interested in geographic polarization, Daniel Hopkins' book, The Increasingly United States, is excellent. And in a lighter vein, Hetherington and Weiler's book, Prius or Pickup. I, of course, want to thank Morris Fiorina for spending time with us. And I also want to thank Henry Brady and the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley and Rachel Kleinfeld and the Carnegie Endowment for permission to use portions of their YouTube presentations on polarization. And of course, I want to thank my producer, Anakumu, for her excellent work. And thanks to you for joining the political conversation.